Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I'm the editor of the TLS. I'm with my food guru, Thea Lenarduzzi. Thea, hello. But that would imply that you actually heed. No, I don't. Uh, but I do regard you as an expert in this barren landscape of, of inexpertise. Anyway, we're developing what Netflix will call an original format, in yep. which I found out your favourite food within a particular category yep. for several weeks until I get bored of the idea. <laughs> Who knows when that will happen? <laughs> Could be this very week. I don't think it is because we've done biscuits and crisps. And crisps. We as well, but we did them in one episode, yeah, I know, so I, I mean, we, we over we indulged that. <laughs> Only one thing for you there: favorite breakfast doesn't have to be Italian, but that'd be interesting. Well, I mean, it isn't Italian though. It's well, it's international. Go on. I'm probably pretty international. Yeah, it's just it's just toast and butter and marmalade. I think oh, you can't for, be really. That. Yeah, oh, it's so good. That's your breakfast. It, yeah. Anywhere I in the world. I look forward to weekends so that I can just... Don't you have, have it in the day? No. Why I don't not? have time in the morning. It's too early. Okay. What's your perfect time for breakfast? Um, 9.30. Oh, okay. I don't eat breakfast at all. Yeah. I only try, have two, I only try and have two meals a day. Oh, you, you're doing that on purpose? I only have two meals a day, yeah. But you would like to have three. Yeah, I'd love to. I would like to just eat bread every day, <laughs> yeah. every meal. But I, I more or less do. How do you manage that then? Do you just have small portions? No, I just, I just, I don't know. I think I was made to eat bread. Made to eat bread. So, <laughs> I, do you know what my, who was the first person to come up with poached eggs and avocado, I wonder? Mm. And whoever it was, I hope they managed to patent it. Mm, they almost certainly they did almost not. Certainly didn't. Absolutely impossible. <laughs> Would you think less of me if I said my favourite breakfast is poached eggs and avocado? On no, toast? I think that's a lovely balanced. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't have it. Coriander, lime. Not coriander. Oh no. You, you want chili flakes? Yeah, I take chili flakes. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Here's the bit where I encourage you to subscribe to the TLS, where there's sometimes food stuff, but not not as much as on this podcast. We didn't talk beverage. Oh, go on. Coffee. Tea? Coffee. Yeah. Black coffee. Um. Used to be. Now I put a bit of milk in it. Are you a coffee snob? Yes. I have mockers. Right. Yeah. Do you mean chocolate and Chocolate coffee? and coffee. Yeah, I... I've even had coffee, chocolate and coconut milk. And do you know what that tastes like? <laughs> I don't know, but my, the, my I, face, if people yeah. could see it, I was just trying to work that it out. It tastes like a bounty. Right. I don't yeah. like bounties. 
We're just, I don't <laughs> so think we're strangely I, soapy. I don't feel we're very compatible. Anyway, come on, let's sell some, let's some, sell some TLS. So, so anyway, but if you like bounties, Sarah, do you like bounties? <laughs> yeah, our producer likes bounties. If you like bounties, coconut milk in a mocha. I have decaf mocha. I'm a discreet. Oh yeah, no, why be alive? Anyway, you, if you, if you, if for some reason after all that twaddle, you're interested in subscribing to the TLS, use this special offer code to get on board. The-TLS.co.uk/forward/slash/podcast/offer. It's the best price anywhere on the internet. Five issues for five pounds or five dollars. That's the-TLS.co.uk/forward/slash/podcast/offer. Coming up this week, what was a Roman brothel really like? Come on, we've all wondered. Well, wonder no more. Rebecca Langlands will tell us all about it. I think Thea nominated Elena Ferrante on this very podcast as one of her artists of the decade. Caroline Moorhead has reviewed her, Elena's that is, latest as yet untranslated novel and will tell us about the prospects for the next 10 years. And we'll have a poem too from Rory Waterman entitled Defences. When I was in my teens, I visited Pompeii on a school trip. Typically, I don't remember much except from listening to music in the amphitheatre, which was lovely. But I think I remember the brothel. But that might only be because it features so often in writing about the place. The dirty pictures on the walls, the seemingly tiny, comfortless cubicles. So what does the place say about the Romans and their structures around sex and power? Well, Rebecca Langlands has reviewed a book called The Brothel of Pompeii by Sarah Levin Richardson, which apparently combines erudite detective work with feminist imagination. And Rebecca is on the line now. Rebecca, hello. Hello. Uh, this brothel, it's, it's become one of the iconic buildings of Pompeii, hasn't it? It has, rather. I mean, it's certainly one of the main tourist attractions there. And I think you were just saying it features in lots of um, writing about about Pompeii, but I, it, it seems to crop up in popular literature quite a lot as well. Yeah. Why, why do you think it's just because we, people are interested in sex? I mean, obviously, the bottom line is that. But yeah. I think, I mean, I think it, it's also, it really feels like a place that you can imagine that ancient people were in. So it has that real sense of um, presence and immediacy about it, I think. What do you think people think of it? Is it regarded just as... A, an example of a brothel and people don't think any more of it? Well, it's interesting. You were talking about visiting there as a school child. And one of the, a few years ago, I did a piece of research, actually, on contemporary um, responses to the brothel. And lots of people have a real sense of revelation when they visit it because they feel as if it's it's a sort of evidence that people in the past thought about sex as well and it was okay to talk about sex so i think people often have a very profound personal response to uh, to the brothel and there's pictures on the wall so i suspect particularly as a child it's it's fairly explicit in in some respects isn't it Exactly. And it's not something we're used to seeing in that kind of museum heritage sort of context in our own um, everyday lives. So I think it has that particular thrill um, to people visiting now. Uh, so go on, what to, let's talk about this book. What's the central claim in it? I mean, it's a very it's a very thorough study of the brothel and all the different aspects of it, not just focusing on the pictures, but all the sort of little bits of broken pottery and things that are found um, that were found in the site, really trying to get a sense of how it functioned in the ancient world and what it was all about. But one of the really exciting arguments, provocative arguments, I guess, that the author makes is that it might have been 
um, a sort of one-off failed business venture that's actually unlike anything else in the ancient world. So we think of it as this representative brothel that shows us an insight into the ancient in the lives of the ancients, but actually maybe it was something a bit strange and odd for them as well. And what's the basis for that theory? Well, the, the base, one basis is it appears that the cost of sex in the brothel was extremely cheap. And the brothel appears to have been um, catering for very low class um, Roman men, even slaves who didn't have much money. And yet her, as you called it, detective work that she's done shows that what was on offer was something actually, well, quite luxurious in its own way and also very, very much trying to conjure up a sense of luxury um, in the brothel itself. So it's a bit like a gentleman's club for, but, but, but made available to the poorest in society. Yeah, I mean, almost not a gentleman's club, but I guess pretending to be a gentleman's club, something like that. So it's sort of trying to conjure up what it might feel like to be a gentleman for people who really didn't have the life of a gentleman at all. So, I mean, if it, if it was a failed business plan, that sort of suggests that it, it can't have lasted very long because it would have surely become quite evident quite quickly that this wasn't going to work financially. I guess so. I mean, obviously, that is a, a sort of a speculative argument that she makes. Um, and one of our problems is obviously it's very difficult to date things in Pompeii. There was the, the destruction of the city and preserved things um, in, in a particular year, but it's not clear how long things were in operation beforehand. But yes, I think her argument would be that it sort of somebody somebody sunk their life savings into it and then and then um, and then it didn't work out. Uh, and what sort of the pictures are all of straight sex, aren't they? Yes, I mean, straight in the sense of heterosexual, but also straight in the sense of very much um, straight, vanilla vanilla sex, nothing nothing kinky, nothing a bit different, um, which is different from other kinds of painting that you find in Pompeii. Oh, so tell us through that. So there are pictures of kinky stuff, but not in the brothel. Yes, exactly. There's a there's a there's another set of paintings, very well known paintings in the suburban baths, um, which show fellatio, group sex, cunnilingus, all sorts of um, girl on girl action and um, various other kinds of sex acts. And they're very different from the ones you find in the brothel, which are all a man and a woman having vaginal sex, basically. And what's the and what's the theory that follows from that? That that's what you got there or that's what they want to advertise? Because there's some graffiti that suggests sort of oral and anal sex as well. But is the theory that this was a place where you got vanilla sex? Yeah, I mean, her, her theory is that not so much that only vanilla sex took place there, but that the kind of it, the, the sort of heteronormativity of it was important. So the idea that it rep- the paintings represent um, sex of a be- between a beautiful man and a beautiful woman is part of the sort of fantasy that's being sold by the brothel. Um, I mean, there are other theories about the suburban bath paintings and why they represent all sorts of other different kinds of sex acts that complicate the argument a bit. But yeah, so her argument is other things may have gone on there, but they're trying to sell a very straight, heteronormative experience. It's a really interesting idea, though, isn't it? Because if it was a failed business um, project and... And it was pushing this very, as you say, heteronormative idea of Roman masculinity for poorer members of society. It's sort of, you wonder why and whether, I mean, who whose idea was this? Because if it was the people who were starting the business, as I said, they would have run out of steam quite quickly. So then mm. you sort of start to think, I wonder if it was subsidised on some level by 
the local government or something. What as a way of keeping <laughs> keeping lower slaves yeah, and lower class people happy? Yeah, to stop them from rebelling and and to keep them happy and also to 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 propagate a kind of healthy, in inverted commas, idea of of masculinity and sex. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, it's it's so difficult to get get your head around what what would have gone on and why why these things were set up in this way. But it's yeah, I suppose it is possible that it was something that was. I mean, if not state, it could even just be the wealthier people wanting yeah. to keep people happy and keep them. What 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 follows for the life of the sex workers themselves? Because there's an argument here. Well, this is a you're a slave or you're a very poor uh, man in in Rome, and you want to pretend you're not. So you go to a place that offers you a nice glass of wine and and sex, and you get to feel like a, a great hero. What does that yeah. mean for the for the people who are providing the service? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And, and it, that's one of the really nice things about the book, actually, that it really goes into that and thinks about it has almost half the book is trying to reconstruct the experiences of prostitutes, whether they were male or female prostitutes who worked in the brothel and what their lives would have been like. And exactly sort of sense that if you're the person that's kind of catering, you know, trying to make someone else feel good and cater to their comforts, then you're obviously expending a lot of your own emotional labor on them as well so it it's it seems like it would be hard work for the people working there and what was her conclusion then was that this was was this a bleak place for them this were these would these be would these have been slaves themselves almost certainly slaves and uh, i mean to a large extent she's looking at comparative material from other cultures as well but there's sort of you know obviously there's a lot of room for exploitation in any um prostitution establishment but I think, I mean, there's a certain amount of bleakness to it, there's no doubt, but also it's very, there's a lot of humour as well, because there seems to be you know, this companionship and there's also all the scribblings on the walls of sort of jokes and adverts and things lend a bit more of a liveliness to it. So you do get a sense of, you know, comradeship and humour going on in there as well. There's also the suggestion that the women who, who were working in prostitution weren't probably as, as marginalised as, as they would tend to be today. You describe, for instance, uh, how the residences are kind of oh yes pell-mell right. with the brothel yes that's another really nice thing that she does thinking about the upper upper floor of the brothel and the way that that was probably apartments that were separated but people would be mingling and socially yeah that's right exactly and she she talks about them going to the well they'd have to go and get the water from the nearby wells they'd all sort of go to the cafe and sit and gossip while they were getting the water from the well so yeah there's a sense of the integration um into the wider community that i really liked from her book as well do you know what i found extraordinary rebecca uh, and this is my own ignorance but th- you say that this is the only purpose-built brothel in the archaeological record that's ever been identified yeah and yet if i, I read sort of historical fiction a lot of which is set in roman times the concept of a brothel and sort of soldiers on leave repairing to the brothel to drink vinegary wine and have sex with with um, courtesans is such a cliche of the sort of modern classical imagination. Are there really not lots of um, archaeological ruins of brothels dotted around the Roman world? Well, this is one of the big questions, anxieties of the scholarship, because there aren't there's nowhere else that has all the different elements that this building has so it has the cubicles with the beds built in and the pillows on them and the erotic paintings and the graffiti all of those things come together and it seems absolutely incontrovertible that this is a brothel but clearly brothels do not have to have all of that paraphernalia and any building could have served as a brothel so i think um you know that we don't need to give up that that fantasy if we find it appealing that the 
But um, it's a surprise, though, isn't it? I mean, bearing in mind there's a lot of Roman ruins about the place. We've invested yeah. culturally for hundreds of years in reconstructing that. It's just struck me as astonishing in a way that the only place that, that, as you say, has all of those factors in it is in Pompeii. But maybe they don't last for for obvious reasons. Maybe. The... Well, that's that is another thing. Exactly. So some obviously lots of buildings. I mean, there are buildings which could be brothels, and people want them. You know, want to think that they might be. And the baths that I was talking about. Some people think, oh, maybe some of the rooms in the building were used for prostitution. Yeah. But it's yeah that particular. I mean, obviously stone is durable, and other fabrics and wood and other kinds of building materials aren't and paintings get painted over and so things don't last and that's one of the problems that we always have yeah. I, I just interested in what in ancient rome do we know the relationship to prostitutes and, and sex work generally was it is this a, this integration that you talk about is that a kind of common thing in the literature that someone who's a courtesan or maybe there's a difference between a courtesan and a prostitute was there was was prostitution regarded in a different way to how it may say be today? Um, I mean, that's a complicated question, and again, it's another one that scholars argue over because there's a, there are there are some arguments about whether they had zoning and red light districts in antiquity in the same way that we do today, or whether brothels were just haphazardly throughout the city. And there's not an agreement on that. Um, brothels are mentioned a lot in the literature. People pop into brothels and. Um, uh, and, and, and they're seen as, in fact, the, there's a whole genre of, of um, literature, ancient Roman comedy, which is very, very popular theatre, where prostitutes are, are usually sort of stereotypical main characters and they often have a brothel on stage. Oh, is that sort of, um, Plautus, that sort of Plautus and Terence exactly, type stuff? Exactly, Plautus and Terence, exactly. So oh. that, that was really kind of popular stuff. So they're very much part of the community, you know, they're, they're integrated into, into popular imagination in that way, certainly. But with a certain whimsical or it seems to me that you wouldn't have many these days broad comedies featuring sex workers there's possibly an argument that if Plautus and Terence could say oh there's so and so the courtesan uh, that they are not regarded quite as distinct or as quite as um, um, shaming as some people regard prostitutes today it feels like it might have been more seen as part of the sort of normal circulation of the city well, I think there's, on the one hand, I think that could easily be the case that there's more, sort of more of an expectation that you might, you know, rub shoulders with people. But on the other hand, Rome was a very, very hierarchical society. So one of the things about prostitutes is they, they didn't have the same legal rights and status as people who are non-prostitutes. So if you were registered as a prostitute, you lost certain civic rights. Yeah. Well, maybe, was, a, maybe a society that has slavery kind of has already gone past that point so within the context yeah. of a slave society they weren't particularly disregarded but there is a, it's a slave society so all sorts of human rights have already been thrown out the window yeah so there, there are gradations so they can you can be free you can be a free person you're not a slave but at the same time you are not um you know you you, you lose some of your status and rights by practicing prostitution so and and in, and in some times so for example under the emperor augustus he wanted prostitutes to wear clothing that would mark them out from other women so that it was very clear when you walked down the street who was and who wasn't a prostitute oh. so who you could accost do we, and know who what, you couldn't. do we know what that clothing was what, what it was yeah like? they they wore togas like men did Oh. And the and the women, the, the the respectable women would wear her nice long. Well, well that, that, that that's an interesting thing to unpack. So hmm. to to be a to be a heterosexual sex worker, you dress like a man is a kind of interesting idea. 
Yes, I mean not an everyday man, but I I don't I don't, I don't know enough about about no. it and whether it's exactly the same toga as men did, but it's certainly called called that and yeah, it oh, is interesting. very interesting. And how long did it last? I mean, was, did it, did it not survive Augustus? I don't know. Well, look, we, know we're dragging that. you out for the areas that you're not your expertise. <laughs> but I'm just, isn't this an interesting subject though? Because it, although it's at one level quite a small subject, it does speak to we all have views, don't we, about Roman the Roman world, because, I mean, Thea's Italian, so you'll have probably different experience of schooling. But, you know, I grew up doing Latin, and so I, have a, I feel, and I read historical fiction, so I feel I have this sort of semi-caricatured view of the bustling, you know, Chandler-esque city before, it's, before the time. Um, and then we are confronted, well, how true is all of that? Yeah, I mean, I mean that, that city that you're describing is exactly what juvenile conjures up in his satires and so it comes straight from the ancient literature itself it's not something that we've just invented but obviously we then our imagination then tweaks it as we wish what about cling to it and what happened in italy what do they do with the roman inheritance well i mean it's very much there and obviously it's been brought back for various political uh, reasons repeatedly yeah um i don't really remember how we were taught it at school and also remember i didn't go to an italian school i went to a weird european school yeah um do they do a lot of latin in italy uh, in school, yeah. some, yes. Well, you sort of decide which school you want to go to, but whether you want to go to a linguistic or a technical or, or whatever. But yes, I mean, yeah, I didn't do Latin. You didn't it was do optional La- and I didn't Come on, do it. Thea. I know. Oh, dear. I know. Rebecca, you sad that Thea didn't do Latin. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's very shocking. Yeah. Uh, just finally, Rebecca, um, this seems like a really... You seem that you like this book and you, you yeah. learned a lot to it. What's live, what, you would have read, read it a while ago. What's, what's kind of stayed with you? I mean, actually, you were alluding to it just now, but that sort of sense of the lives of the people who were in the brothel, the way that she managed to really nicely evoke. It's, it's a very scholarly work, and it's very, very much based on the evidence, but she really makes the evidence sing. She makes it, you know, sing to us about what the ancient world would have been like. And I really, I liked that, that sort of conjuring up of a world that we don't always think of when we think of antiquity. Yeah, I love that as well. Uh, Rebecca Langley, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it believe... sounds fascinating. Yeah, isn't it? I, I, and it's so interesting. I just cannot believe that there's not. Do you not think that's weird that there's, there's no other purpose-built brothel? Yeah, and I was. I, I, I mean, I'm sure it's true. I was trying so hard to think of all the other Roman ruins that I've been to. You know, Ircolano, which is just up the road from Pompeii. Yeah. Uh, Herculaneum. And yes, exactly <laughs> that that one. Yeah. Um, just yeah, it, but then when you say it, I suppose it is partly because, as Rebecca says the erotic art is scattered around all over the place so it sort of takes the division out of the thing so yeah. you don't only think of the brothel as being this one specific location it sort of disperses but this idea that you could i also think it's the idea of you go into a you can see the bedroom mm. and you can see the painting on the wall that looks a bit like a menu yeah and you can see it long before it comes because there's the longest queue you've ever seen re- so i don't remember <laughs> for that one yeah building. i don't I, I wish i could remember i was 15 when I went on a school trip and my interests were slightly elsewhere mm. uh, mainly watching uh, the girls I was with be accosted by Italian men oh. Italian men man <laughs> that's a that's a that's maybe a subject for another podcast there but w- my eyes were opened mm. and not in a not in a no. not not in a positive way but I won't hold you responsible for that's the relief them. yeah exactly <laughs> Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Elena Ferrante is a regular on this podcast, in topic if not in person, and it's not, as Stig might have you believe, all my doing. The final instalment of Ferrante's much-loved Neapolitan Quartet in 2014 was followed by a highly publicised and highly criticised investigative article that claimed to reveal the pseudonymous author's identity as the translator Anita Raja. After the article came the angst. Ferrante had always maintained that anonymity was absolutely essential to her project. I have gained a space of my own, a space that is free, she said. To relinquish it would be very painful. And so we waited. Would, could, she write again? Yes, Q-Mass Relief is the answer. A new novel has, as you may have heard, arrived, and I'm pretty sure the TLS is the only Anglophone publication to have a review of it, because it won't appear in translation until June. Caroline Moorhead, the author of that review, joins us on the line now to tell us what we have to look forward to. Hello, Caroline. Hello. Um... So La Vita Bugiarda degli Adulti, The Lying Life of Adults, is the book's title. Um, can you give us a brief outline of it? Yes, it's not totally un- unlike um, the beginning of the quartet, in that it really is about a young girl, in this case a, um, an early teenager, and her two friends. The difference here is that the girls come from the middle classes rather than the the poor areas of, of um, Naples, of her original heroine. Um, and this girl, who is much cosseted, an only child, much loved by her parents, um, discovers one day that her, that her father doesn't love and admire as, as she thought. She overhears him saying to her mother that, that she's very ugly and, and nasty. And these are the terms, just like his sister, with whom he has totally fallen out. Um, now, she had grown up with the with the name of the sister, which is Vittoria, as a sort of synonym for all that was most horrible and hateful. And so what she does is she decides to go off and find this aunt, in fact. And this aunt is belongs to the to the poor 
area of Naples. So there is this contrast between the rich Naples and the poor Naples. And Vittoria turns out to be fascinating and rude and violent and, and, a, and altogether a mile away from the refined world in which she grew up. At much the same time, she discovers that her father is having an affair with the mother of her two best friends. And this precipitates the girl into, if you like, into growing up. Into growing up and not being a good little girl anymore. She sleeps with a boy, she wears hideous clothes, and above all, she does very, very badly at school. So what the book really is about, it's about this moment of transition between childhood and adulthood, if you like, which has always been wonderful Ferrante territory. So that's all precipitated by an early betrayal. Is this, this is all very familiar territory to, to Ferrante readers. There's the, the kind of the search to get to know the past and the past is usually a, a kind yes. of an underworld. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, she is a master at, at providing detail from the past that fits into the present. I mean, what she is incredibly skilled at is this sort of tapestry. Um, you feel it's almost it's almost like sewing of a, a piece, and she fits in little bits, and she colours them differently, and then she weaves in something else. It's like a whole woven tapestry, her canvas. Um, this is where, in a way, it's like the other books. But it's also... I think it's 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 very enjoyable reading. It's enjoyable and quite sort of troubling reading. Does it and does it feel new or does it feel not like you've read it before necessarily? But do you feel like she's pushing things further because uh, truth, the striving for it, is this idea that comes up again and again in relation to Ferrante's work and her identity. Sure, but you know also in in Ferrante's own discussion of her work, um, she's looking for this truth. Is there a is there a new truth or a truth kind of framed differently? Oh, that's difficult to answer. I mean, many of all her old concerns are there. The concerns, you know, relationships between mothers and daughters, um, adolescence, um, the way things are never what they seem to be. I think if there's a new thing, it's, it, in, funnily enough, it's in the title, The Lies, the lies that, that, that Grown-Ups Tell. Um, this really is a book about about the betrayals, conscious and unconscious, that come with not facing up to the truth and not wanting to tell the truth, and the sort of alternative realities that you can spin like a web out of the world. Now, that's slightly different from the rest, but anybody who loves the quartet will enjoy this because, yes, it's much the same territory, but it feels new. Will it, will it will it therefore be in the? Sh- I'm interested about. That. Will it be therefore be in the shadow of the near the, the Neapolitan Quartet because that's already exists. That's kind of achieved canonical status. And if you're broadly in the same territory, but it's not the the quartet itself. Do you think this was will be regarded therefore as a good but minor work in comparison with the major work for which she's most famous? Well, that's always going to be a trouble, I think, because that quartet. Um, assumed such sort of iconic status. Certainly in Italy, the reviews have been very good, and not too much has been made about its similarity to the quartet. To the quartet. I mean, people have admired the, the novel for what it is. Um, will it go down as a minor? 
I don't know. I found it extremely enjoyable and unputable down. It's a modern setting, isn't it? Because, I mean, there's something very 20th century, arguably 19th century, I suppose, about, about Ferrante and the world that she, that she has, has kind of brought to us. I almost can't or don't want to imagine her with, you know, in the world of smartphones, for example. But this is a modern setting, isn't it? Giovanna's coming of age in, in the 21st century. Indeed it is, and indeed um, phones do make their appearance. It is the 20th century, but equally, you're quite right, it doesn't in any way feel sort of a reflection of the sort of malaise of, of modern times, a sort of obsession, if you like, with with social media, and, and that just isn't there. In a, in a sense, it's sort of timelessly around the turn of the century, isn't it? It's to do with with growing up in that Italy, which came after the end of the of the um, of the sort of good financial times, when everybody was slightly anxious about work, um, and but before the sort of difficulties of the modern politics and so on in Italy, actually it's quite divorced from politics, which actually I think is also true of quite a lot of our novels. You don't feel that she wants really to be plugged into the travails of of modern political solution. But that's quite a trick to pull off, isn't it? Because if, if you're setting it in the modern world and you cut it off from politics and you don't clutter it up, you know, your, your heroes aren't stopping to update their Facebook page every uh, 25 minutes or, or tweets. Yep. It's quite a hard trick because in some ways that is the modern world and it, she is a great realist and she's a great... places you very much in the physical world where she's describing Naples in all her books, presumably this one too is is, is evocatively uh, described as a real place. Is it hard then to, to, to play the trick of not cluttering it up with all the bits of modernity that do also exist? Well, it certainly didn't bother me. Um, it sounds great, but it's, it's hard to do, I'd have thought. Yes, but, but I think so much of our concerns are to do with what goes on in the head. I yeah. mean, I think where she is most brilliant is in in imagining herself into the heads of her heroes and heroines, really, basically heroines, really. She she comes more in the school of people I can who really write about endlessly about what is going on in their heads. Um, and I, I, I make that sound less good. I think, in a way, it's very good because she does it brilliantly. Um, but I think that's where her real interests lie. She said, really, and she said it's almost in terms that an anonymity kind of enabled her to do that. If you don't fetishise the author, she can inhabit other other people's heads in that way. Um, the post-world in which she was uh, identified, and that identification has never really been confirmed either. Some people still don't think it's right. Has that changed anything, do you think, to her in the way she's written about or... Uh, rather the way she writes and in the way that she's read and written about? Well, amazingly enough, I think not. I think that I was surprised at the degree of outrage there was when she was, as it were, outed. Um, I was very, very surprised. It was the New York Review of Books, wasn't it? And mm. they were much criticised for the piece. We well, they, they took it from Il Sole 24 Ore and um, yeah. a, a German newspaper published it as well. Yes, mm. absolutely. But I suppose what I must have picked up on is the sort of English language. Exactly. Yeah, they, well, they, that's where it really took off, because, I mean, how many people read in Sola? Exactly. <laughs> and everybody's saying, you know, this is completely intolerable. I think that the strength of that reaction was what it made it possible for her to, as it were, move back behind her wall of silence mm. 
and pretended it had never happened. I mean, I think her book, Frantumalia, is really, really interesting because it says much more about her than I've ever seen anywhere mm. else. And a lot of these are interviews that she conducted via her publisher uh, with queries put to her by some interviewer, and she anonymously, if you like, answered them. And anybody really interested in her would be fascinated by that. Mm. What's interesting with that, that book is that exists for Antimalia, as you say, but she's not... Her books, her novels aren't sort of tricksy in any way they're not really preoccupied with writerliness or being a writer or her own identity there she seems one of her great strengths it seems to me is she's a proper storyteller she doesn't get caught into that sort of postmodern approach to writing no i think that's absolutely right and, and i'm sure you know that there was always quite a lot of criticism in italy that she wasn't a more stylish writer if you like oh what, what mm, st- stylish in the sense course. of uh, oh, there was a coarseness to her writing, a kind of exactly. un- unpolishedness. Unpolishedness, exactly. Or in the prose itself? Mm. In the prose itself. That's always been a cri- criticism of her in Italy. Um, but that's slightly to do with, with the sort of um, the sort of belles the sort of sometimes mannered approach of a lot of um, modern Italian writers. I mean, I find her really enjoyable for that reason. Can you see what and they're talking about when they say coarse? <laughs> plain is... is is what I would say. That's good, though, isn't it? Well, to me, it's excellent. <laughs> it's about the tradition, though, isn't it? As Caroline's saying, you're saying sort of within the context of the, of the great history of Italian letters, it's yes. almost like Hemingway's just happened. <laughs> exactly. She's oh, not, really? She's not um, a sort of stylist, as, as people you know, maintain they long for. I mean, I think what would be really interesting is what comes next, mm. because in a way, I think it was perfectly okay to go back and write another book about young girls growing up in Naples. But I think in a way she has to now branch out. Mm. Um, I know she wrote uh, her earlier novels um, were not exactly about this, but I think what would be wonderful now would be if she turned to some other area of people. I don't, I don't really see her writing something which isn't about being in people's heads, but, but uh, another discourse, another narrative, if you like. And maybe another city. I mean, because it feels like she's done Naples, hasn't she? She really has done Naples and maybe another city. And exactly. yet she seems to be concentrating more because her previous novels tend to have split yes. events or, or had sort of character revelations come in, in different cities, northern cities, to kind of heighten this contrast, whereas, you know, between the the northern way and the southern way, whatever those things mean. Uh, whereas here, everything's happened in, in Naples and the contrast between the rich and the poor, the, the you know, the vulgar and the refined, the, the superego and the id, I suppose, all is brought to bear in Naples itself. Yes, and somewhere in Frantumalia, she says something about, you know, everything I do, everything I think about in the end always goes back to Naples. Mm. Oh, well, I read about the, she's, there's, there's an argument she's a classicist in some respects and, mm. and she talks about Carthage as this sort of city with real stones that's, that was kind of part of the imagination and then Naples is, is effectively the same thing it's a place where the, the stones have character the stones have so, a, a sort of valency that she wants to sort of bring to bear in the writing um, yes, that's absolutely right. And I think, again, if you read Frantumalia, you discover to what extent she's highly educated and cultured. Um, she has references to everything you can possibly think of in philosophy, and she's very interested in analysis. Uh, and she's a great reader, and she's read very, very widely. Um, and in a way, you don't necessarily get that from, from the novels. Because it's not a show-off. She's, she's, no. she's not a show-off. Should I be faintly disappointed, Caroline? Because it strikes me that... 
it's why I was sort of trying to get the idea of it, how minor it is. Maybe that's the wrong way of putting it, but maybe the next thing has to be a bit different. Because if you've done this sort of timeless quartet, you know, we were talking about at the end of last year is if you looked back at the last decade, she was arguably one of the great writers of that decade doing this stuff. The next book comes out mm. and it's a bit, well, you know, young girls learning about themselves and adulthood in Naples. You can't keep... You can't keep doing it. No, I agree with you. I don't think... Well, to my mind, it would be good if she didn't do it again now. We should, um, yeah. I mean, it would be good if she moved away and, and found something. You see, what I don't know from, from her identity or what is what sort of age she is. No, That's interesting. I, I, I read it as... Um, sort of middle-aged woman because she was because there was an argument about whether it was her husband or her I mean, wasn't it yeah. and all that stuff so it felt like she was and she had a professional career yeah. connected to classics or connected to publishing so it felt yeah. to me reading that stuff although the other thing that's interesting is I almost entirely forgot who she was because A I didn't particularly like the way it was done and B it wasn't that important yeah. or, or important. memorable and it's yeah. just kind of to me it's slightly followed away I was actually looking before that I was googling around and there's no great, even now, yeah. it's almost in a, as if in a courteous way, the literary world yeah. has sort of said, well, let's forget that that terribly common uh, yeah. journalist dared to do this. <laughs> and everyone's sort of not talking about it. No, and I think that's very interesting and also very impressive. Mm. Um, and, I, you know, I think when she says, um, I didn't want to come out from behind the wall because I'm not interested in the world of modern celebrity, um, I think she, for herself, was absolutely right. She wasn't being falsely modest. I think she just genuinely um, wants to remain solitary. And yet the cynic in me, Caroline, which is quite a large part of me, yeah. thinks that if you were to be playing the, the game of celebrity, one great way of doing it is to create mystery around yourself by never being identified. Yes, but I, I don't go along with your cynicism no, here. Right. I don't think she... I mean, well, how do I know? Yeah. I just don't feel that so. Well, no, but you've read a lot of her in the language she writes, and I think you get a sense of an author there, because you, you can argue that she's slightly had her cake and eaten it, because she is... No one really knows who she is, even now, and yet the brand Ferrante is, is in some way enhanced by her anonymity. Yes, you can, but... I resist the notion oh, that right. it's conscious, but I may be wrong. I may be totally wrong. Could be the and one also, that... what's the point in having cake if you're not going to eat it? Why shouldn't she eat it? <laughs> <laughs> Everything always comes back to eating with you, doesn't it? That's classic, classic Italian. It always comes back to, to, to eating, eating food. Well, I'm sure she'll get lots of cake this time. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure she'll never be short of cake now with, with what's gone on uh, over the, the last decade. Uh, Caroline, what a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank indeed. you. Bye, Caroline. Thank you, Thea. Bye. Uh, well, I'm not going to lie. I'm, I, I'm, and I don't think anyone would be fooled. I am going to read this in Italian. Yeah. Well, I need to get hold of it first. But yes. Yeah. Would you? When you do that, would you read it in Italian and English? Once you read it in Italian, I don't need to bother. Well, what I've done with the previous ones is the first few I read in Italian. I don't think they were available in English. I can't remember when they would have been translated. But then the Neapolitan Quartet I read in English because that's what was here, what was available. Yeah. Um, and then I read the Italian of one of them to just to sort of see how it worked. Yeah. Um, and out has of she interest. Been, and really. has she been well translated? For the most part, yes. I think there's always stuff that you can quibble with. Um, but now I will. Yes, this is only available in Italian, so there's absolutely no choice, and I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I'm slightly in awe of that. You know, I, I love the idea of being able to to read a 
complicated novel in two languages. I think it's Latin. Possible. You probably could. I could read a bit of it. I'd, I'd give up. I could read a chunk of it in Latin. Oh, we didn't mention, but uh, she's now super. She's now sort of elevated into the pantheon, isn't she, Frantin? Maggie mm. Gyllenhaal. Oh, she's making. Yeah, she's making a film of the lost daughter. Yeah, my favourite ever interviewee. Maggie oh, really? Gyllenhaal. She is great. And you're so glad because imagine if she wasn't. And yeah. she came into to, I was at the radio four, and we came to interview her. And I thought I'd just done an interview with uh, a director who I won't name, who had been very arms folded mm. why are you asking me questions I'm like, well, why are you? I don't want to talk to you either about this <laughs> but um, and she came in and she was so clever Maggie mm. Gyllenhaal and you could, you asked her a question she paused and then had an answer but she was really into Ferrante she yeah. was really important to her um, whether that film will, will it will be very interesting to see it's possibly one of the kind of bleakest of the novels yeah but does she need elevating further Ferrante do you think she's now she's oh now... I think she's stratospheric really <laughs> Yeah, and you're going to find out, and you can tell. When will you read this? I feel um, that, well, I have a, I have I feel a, that you, a period of, of sitting oh, you do. coming up, so I think I'll just. Can I be honest here? I feel that we set each other these slight reading challenges, yeah. and I'm not sure they're ever have done. Have you read that nine volume space opera? Uh, no, I read the first one. <laughs> really? Yeah, I have did. You? Yeah. Lucy came in the next day, and I read it, and she gave it to me. It's called Leviathan Wakes the, the Expanse, mm-hmm. and I read it. It was like 500 pages. Uh, I quite liked it. Mm. I don't know. I think Lucy's a bit disappointed because I said to her, it's pretty good. <laughs> uh, I enjoyed it. It was a bit uh, a bit sort of detective-y. I just, in the end, I can't, my heart doesn't beat faster yeah. when, you know, people come out of airlocks and, mm-hmm. uh, and have to deal with intergalactic space mm. travel. I'm not sneery of it. It just, it doesn't, doesn't it, do doesn't, it, it doesn't do it for me. But uh, I did do it. So I, all, no, all I'm saying is... You're going to have to do this. Yeah. Is there something else you're supposed to read? Well, I will, I will happily, very happily read this, also because I've chosen to do it myself. Where I struggle is when people thrust books yes. upon me, especially if they come highly recommended, because I sort of... I, ah, yeah, but also I you, you don't want to be too belated to anything, do you? Yeah. Yeah, quite right. It's time for a bit of poetry. This week in the paper, Rory Waterman has published Defences, which takes us from Kirby Muxlow Castle to Belfast Zoo. Rory is going to read it for us. Rory, over to you. Defences, Kirby Muxlow Castle. Crikey, you say. It's gorgeous. Across the moat, two hunks of unfinished battlement reflect, a bit like the butterfly prints we once did at school, the bottom halves faint and blemished. Let's walk it round. And never mind the scuppered portally breaching by the bridge that was a drawbridge. The teams of mallards sifting wavelets don't. Then when you see a moorhen padding the roots of an undercut willow, instinctive bird-brained head quantum leaping about on the stem of her neck, ten balls of chick bunching and stretching behind as she pushes away to the safety of open water, you act as I once would have. Look, she's got ten. At Belfast Zoo, between goes on the toddler swing, I finger-jabbed at a peacock stretching its fan. Duck! But I was one and can't remember this tale, which might be true. And ten years later, a young ornithologist tied to the heart of his father, keen to impress somehow as we boated the broads long bends of reed-furred river, blue-green-blue. I pointed out a preening crested grebe riding the ripples, He was half blind by then, a sudden 
genetic inconvenience and couldn't see it and said he thought he could. A windmill stretched its X across the sky. Geese beat frantic along the water runway. He turned his head to show me I could show him. And that night, when we'd moored beside the swan, and after my bedtime, as I raced model hawks surreptitiously around my cabin, he punched his would-have-been wife in the eye, then went back to his scotch. I watched them through the crack he couldn't discern along the door jam, and knew the truth, then how to doubt the truth when he said, then when she said, that she'd slipped. The bitterness of justice, never done. Dandelions are stitched down to the water where ramsons have flowered. I pick one and we taste. You bunch your nose to wrinkles. Do you mean it? Then pounce for another bite. Lead me behind this blackthorn hedge. No, let me drive us home. That was Rory Waterman reading Defences and his second collection of poems, Sarajevo Roses, was shortlisted for the 2019 Ledbury Forte Prize. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Rebecca Langlands, Rory Waterman and Caroline Moorhead. Do subscribe to the paper this week. We've got lots of great stuff, including an introduction to the life of the greatest diplomat of the 19th century. Do you know who that is, Theo? Sorry, I completely zoned out there. Okay, the, who, is the, who is, according to the TLS, the greatest <laughs> diplomat of the 19th century? Oh, it's, uh, 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 what's his name? Uh, Met- uh, yeah. Met- uh, Metternich. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> Hurrah! I was miles away. That's good though. I gave a little quiz. Uh, we'll also about that. A history of the sea. Why bother to garden? It's a great question as far as I'm concerned. Mm. I quote Garfield in my little uh, uh, what did he to the say? paper. He said, they say to him, uh, what do you think of the great outdoors, Garfield? And he, and he goes, the one thing I'd do to improve the great outdoors is put a roof over it. <laughs> I'm a little bit of Garfield. Uh, and next week though, we're not going to be talking about cats, Thea. No. We're good. going to be talking about dogs. Yes. So maybe we can talk about Alf? Maybe I'll bring Alf in. Oh, that'd be lovely. You won't do it, though. <laughs> that'd be brilliant. Uh, the cover of the TLS next week is a lovely picture. Photo dog. of Alf? Oh, photo. no. Oh, is it not? Oh. No. We'll, we'll talk about that off air. Uh, you don't want to miss that. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.